Hi, you're listening to The Gesher Sessions, a podcast on the psychology of religious belief and experience. My name is Dr. John Catone, and I've been a psychologist for almost 20 years. But for most of my life, I've been on a quest to better understand the mysteries of existence, as well as the beliefs that people have about those mysteries. Joining me on this quest are two of my closest friends, Daphne Solterstein and Dr. David McLean. Daphne and David are not just my companions on the road of truth. They're two of the smartest and deepest people I know. If you've been searching for an oasis where people have intelligent conversations about religion without sacrificing rational thinking or intellectual honesty, then you've found what you've been looking for. And we've been waiting for you. So come on and join us. And let's cross some bridges together. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us on the Gesha Sessions podcast. For this first episode, we thought we'd give you a quick summary of who we are, what we plan to talk about, and why you'll want to become a regular listener of our show. So without further ado, it is my great pleasure to introduce the first of my two co-hosts, Daphne Solta-Stein. We'll tell you all about herself, her religious journey, and what she plans to bring to our discussions. She'll also tell you what the word Gesher means and how we came to make it part of the title of our podcast. Daphne? Hello, everyone. I want to start by saying my religious journey is love of nature, love of dancing, and love of Judaism. I love Judaism, and I have felt nurtured and guided by it all of my life. I've never really strayed from it. I've explored and learned about and from other religions for sure. But for me, Judaism has always been a constant comfort and has given me a sense of direction and purpose, a sense of support and a sense of belonging to community. My earliest child memories, childhood memories, are filled with experiences pointing me to the sacred and an awareness of God's presence. I might add that I'm a rabbi's daughter, so I grew up in a rabbinic household infused with Judaism, infused with joy and celebration and study. My mother always said, what do you mean you're bored? Find a book. And she said, no matter how much you know, you'll, you'll never know enough. There's always more, which was a Jewish point of view. Um, My mother, I always saw her reading in Hebrew and reading in English, so I had this sense of connection to both uh, being an American and and belonging to what's called Klal Yisrael, the community of Jewish people around the world, which is based in Hebrew and Yiddish and in study and many other things. My father was a rabbi. I remember sitting together in a car when I was seven or eight or nine, And my father was taking my brothers and I and dropping us off at Hebrew school on Sunday morning. And my brothers ran up to the synagogue and I stayed in the car in the front seat. And I said, but daddy, I don't understand. Where is God exactly? If God is everywhere, is God around me and also inside me? And if God's inside me, is God protecting me? Is God watching me? Does God see every single thing I do? You know, so there's that element of fear and awe. And more than that, I I remember asking, if God created the world, what is the world in? 
what's the world inside and whatever the world's inside, what's that inside and what's that inside. And my father sat and he listened and he recognized that my questions were worthy of his attention and of discussion. And I eventually crossed the lawn and went into Hebrew school, but I was late. And I remember being paid attention to. Um, my life growing up as a Jew was filled with singing around the Sabbath table, um, singing in the household and singing in the synagogue. For me, what is important to discuss when we discuss God and the Gesher sessions is the question of maybe we don't ask a person, do you believe in God? Maybe what we're asking is, when do you feel your soul? If God is an attitude towards a way of experiencing life, what are we supposed to do with our lives? One rabbi says God is a verb because we are agents of blessing. If God is a verb, are we godding our way through life? Are we being a blessing to others by the things we choose to do? If being a blessing lifts us up, it's a heavy responsibility. And is, do we experience our souls through the discussions we're going to have during the Gesher sessions? Which brings me to saying, what does Gesher mean? Gesher means bridge, a bridge. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, who lived several centuries ago, said this, Kol ha'olam kulo gesher tsar ma'od v'ha'ikar lo lefached klal. What does this mean? The entire world is a very narrow bridge. The essential thing is not to be afraid. The whole world is a very narrow bridge. The crux of the matter is not to be afraid. The whole world is a very narrow bridge. And the main thing is to have no fear at all. Wow, we're supposed to be courageous. But if courage is being afraid, what do we do with that? Perhaps being afraid means, or being courageous, I should say, means being afraid, but doing what you have to do anyway. That's the Gesher sessions. What will we do? That's a wonderful introduction and vision for the podcast for the future, Daphna. Um, you have the distinction of being both a rabbi's daughter as well as a rabbi's mother, and perhaps uh, a rabbi in the making yourself. We'll see. Um, this notion of Gesher and the bridge and having the courage to do what you feel called to do despite the fear that you may have. On some level, for each of us, uh, this podcast is an expression of what we feel compelled to do and compelled to talk about, uh, despite any fears we may have about talking about some of these things publicly. And the essential thing, as you say, is to, um, to go ahead and do it and to not be afraid. And so... I also ask of our listeners to join us, uh, despite whatever reservations they may have, and 
to not be afraid. But now I'd like to introduce my other co-host, Dr. David McLean, who will tell you about his background and what he has in store for us in his vision for the podcast. David. Well, my background, um, hello everyone. I'm David McLean. I'm a academic philosopher, among other things, an ordained minister. Um, my journey through into, I should say, into and out of and back into the religious life um, started when I was just a boy. I was always interested in science. Um, in fact, I was kind of high on science. And my bedroom uh, was replete with uh, Bunsen burners and chemicals and chemistry sets and telescopes. And uh, one summer, I remember as a boy having my father take us out to uh, Bathing Hollow, Long Island for six weeks in some cabins that he had rented, uh, scraping together some money as a truck driver wasn't easy for him to do. But it was a, it was a, a blast of a summer uh, during which I walked up and down the shore looking at tidal pools, playing with starfish, swimming out to rocks offshore, scuba diving or skin diving, um, looking at live lobsters and just being high on the natural world. That curiosity um, morphed into a curiosity about cosmic things, the nature of religion. Um, and I began to explore biblical themes as a teenager, which led me to uh, leave the Catholicism of my, of my uh, early childhood and, and pursue evangelical Christianity for about three and a half, four years as a teenager. After that um, came the crisis of faith, um, uh, at which point I became an agnostic and actually did a, a bout of atheism, uh, uh, had a period of atheism, and then found that there was something inadequate about all of those ways of looking at the world, whether it's just purely agnosticism or atheism, that I had this need for a, a more robust answer to the meaning of, the, of everything, and struggled my way back um, uh, through a study of uh, comparative religion in college as an undergraduate. And then uh, where I also made, minored in uh, philosophy at the City University of New York, Hunter College. Um, that led to um, uh, a gra graduate work in philosophy and I wound up getting a PhD in philosophy and writing books and articles and giving papers on philosophical themes. But always um, with a sort of, I guess you could say nostalgia, that's probably not the best word, but a hankering, I would say, for uh, religious ideas, religious vocabulary, religious themes, and found my way back to religion and wound up going to attend a seminary, uh, a little bit of a uh, avant-garde seminary in New York, where I was ordained uh, at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in 2008 as a interfaith minister. So religion, uh, for me, is a very important part of human experience. Um, uh, as you can imagine, finding a way to reconcile all of these various types of, of, of pathways to understanding truth uh, is something that wasn't easy, but I think I pulled it off. And I think that I have something that might be useful for those of you out there who are struggling to find a way back to something that gives you a sense of being whole, uh, a sense that you're uh, not a visitor in the world, but that you're at home in it. Uh, and that there's more to this life than any kind of reductive vocabulary or um, perspective um, uh, does justice to. So 
that's a little bit of what we'll be talking or I'll be talking about. And just one more point about Daphne's comment about bridges or understanding of what Gesher means. Um, there are also the bridges inside of ourselves that we're also alienated from ourselves within our own minds or within our own souls. And uh, the process of integration, the process of taking that scientific mind and that technological mind uh, and, and having it, it be introduced to that poetic and artistic and religious mind um, and then integrating all that uh, is, uh, is a process of bridge building, but it's internal. Beyond that, the other bridges that, as John referenced, that we, ha that we have to build in a very balkanized world right now are the bridges to understanding uh, each other, um, you know, uh, the various things that are pulling society apart uh, are things that we'll be talking about as well uh, as we do our discussions of religion and spirituality. Thank you, David. Thank you, Daphna. So these bridges, David, as you mentioned, um, we seek to with this podcast, we seek to extend bridges in many different directions between people of different faiths, between people who may consider themselves believers and non-believers, between people who may have very different visions of the world, a more progressive vision of the world and a more conservative vision of the world we look to extend bridges. But David, as you, as you noted, perhaps the most important bridges and the bridges that we need to start with are the bridges within ourselves. There's a psychological concept called splitting, and it's often associated with borderline personality disorder, but it really extends beyond borderline personality disorder. In a very primitive way, we are taught to divide the world into black and white, good and bad, um, safe and unsafe. This is how our earliest days are um, governed and how we're able to keep safe. But at a certain point, that dichotomy becomes an obstacle to future growth. And we need to learn how to build a bridge between the various parts of ourself or the two halves of ourself. And so I think each of the religions that we have experience with have their own methods for trying to build these internal bridges, prayer, meditation, other things. But in this podcast, I think we will talk a little bit more about some of these methods and how to heal some of the wounds that uh, prevent people from building these bridges within ourselves. So now I'd like to just bring it full circle for a moment and give a little bit of background about myself. As I noted earlier, I'm a psychologist by trade. I came into this world, or as Alan Watts would say, I came out of the world uh, into a Catholic family, and I was raised Catholic. And I was generally satisfied with my Catholic upbringing to a point, but like many people, you reach a certain stage in your religion and you see various gaps and you want to fill those gaps. And for me, I started to fill those gaps by looking into other 
religions or other philosophical paths. And the first one that I came to was Taoism and the Tao Te Ching. And the Tao Te Ching was such a revelation to me when I discovered it in high school. And it filled in so many of the gaps about nature and the natural world and not just nature outside of oneself, but nature within oneself and how human nature is a part of the natural world that we often don't appreciate. And so that was my first foray into other philosophical and religious paths. And that eventually led me to yoga and Hinduism and Buddhism. And at various points in my life, I've attended worship halls, temples, meditation centers for each of these other religious paths, religious or spiritual or philosophical paths. Uh, I'm personally married to a Jewish woman who is on her own journey. And so I see myself as trying to put together a mosaic of different religious and philosophical belief systems that I don't see as being in competition with each other, but as complementing each other or supplementing what the others may lack. And so that is what I hope to bring to our discussions is a perspective from multiple religious, spiritual, and philosophical paths, especially the Eastern ones, which I feel lie at the core of my own personal belief system. From a psychological perspective, I got my PhD at St. John's University, and I did my dissertation on moral reasoning as predicted by both psychological factors called executive functioning and religious factors, different aspects of the way people pursue their own religiosity. And so even from that point forward, I was looking to combine psychology and religion. And when we talk about the psychology of religion, for me, it starts with the age old question, did God create us or did we create God? Is religion just a social construct? Or have there been people, past and present, with extraordinary abilities, experiences, and knowledge that have led us to our current belief systems? What are the limits of our knowledge? And what holds the key to what we choose to believe and what we choose to reject? So these are some of the fundamental questions that I will be looking to pursue as this podcast endures and I will try to bring in some perspectives from the Eastern religions, yoga, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and so on and so forth, as well as some of the Western religions with which I'm familiar, Catholicism with which I was raised, Judaism, which is my wife's faith, but also looking at from a psychological perspective, what are some of the concepts like defense mechanisms, other things that Freud may have talked about terror management theory, various things within the umbrella of psychology that lead us to the destinations within the religious realm that we choose to inhabit. So as we begin to wrap up this first introductory episode, I'd like to offer a preview of 
how this podcast is going to unfold and some of the things that we're going to be talking about in the near future. So we are in the process of recording and releasing a series of foundational episodes. For each of us, our belief system and what we choose to, how we choose to represent ourselves can be explained or summarized by certain core concepts. And in some cases, there might be a book or something else that can help to summarize some of the perspectives that we're coming from. So I guess each of us will have a foundational episode to be released in the near future. And so I guess, Daphna, David, let me ask each of you to give us a little bit of a preview of what each of your foundational episodes will be about and what lies at the core of your belief system and how you choose to represent that. <laughs> you know, this might come as a surprise, but I think my anchoring um, book is the book of Genesis and the first five stories in it, the creation of the world, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the Tower of Babel, and the story of Noah and the covenant. I think because to me there are foundational concepts because the questions being asked are, how did the world get here? Why are we here? What are we supposed to do? Does life have a purpose? How are we supposed to behave? These first five stories in the book of Genesis are very polarized. They're very black and white. They're very good and evil. And for many people, that's very hard, understandably, and challenging. However, if one looks and says, we're being asked to be God's partners, that people are gifted with certain capacities as human beings, these first stories are not Jewish stories. They're, they're Jewish answers, biblical answers to, for the entire human race, free will the inclination to do good, the inclination to do evil. How are we to be a blessing? Are we God's hands in the world? How are we God's partners in the world? And I just might, my little teaser might be, you can look at Adam and Eve and you could say, ooh, Eve was the first scientist. She was told no, but she said, what if? Really? Am I not supposed to eat from the tree of knowledge? of good and evil, right and wrong? Am I not supposed to have higher order thinking? If I have free will, mm, she doesn't even know about free will yet, but what'll happen if I do touch that tree? As the snake suggests, because maybe the snake is her own higher or order consciousness going, that doesn't make sense not to touch it. She touches the tree and nothing happens, so she eats it, eats that apple. And her eyes are opened. I don't, you know, that's the story. But what we do with these stories, how we, all the windows into the stories, the metaphors of the stories, I think that's what I'd like to do. I have many Jewish books I can recommend, but I kind of want to sit with the beginning of Genesis. What better place to start than the beginning? 
<laughs> That's very good. Uh, David, how about you? Well, given where I think um, I'd like to go for my part, um, I think the book that uh, will inform the listener if they're interested in going out and purchasing this or borrowing it from the library is Houston Smith. Uh, Houston Smith was a very famous uh, scholar of comparative religion, um, himself himself grounded in uh, Methodism, um, but explored Hinduism and Islam and wrote a very beautiful book called The World's Religions uh, that we read in the seminary. But the book uh, that I want to mention is called The World's uh, Why Religion Matters. And in that book, Smith explores well, he explores why it is religion matters and why it can't simply be dismissed. And the, the beautiful thing in, in that book is that he takes on the skeptics and he talks about the reductionism that has led us to have a kind of tunnel vision. In fact, the tunnel metaphor is a metaphor he uses in the book. Um, imagine walking down this tunnel that's dark. He says on the left side, there is the, the wall of one wall of the tunnel on the left is higher education which has come to sort of dismiss any kind of, especially in the West, any kind of uh, commitment to religious uh, thought. It, it's ir simply irrational and dismissible, right? Uh, the roof he calls, he thinks of, thinks of as the modern media, which uh, makes no space for religious thought. Um, the floor he calls scientism, this belief that the only vocabulary that we dare utter is the vocabulary of the natural sciences and that there is no other vocabulary that can possibly be true for human beings. And the right wall of the tunnel he calls the, he referred to as the law itself, um, which is a, a commitment in modernity to social justice, which kind of is a commitment that replaces any kind of higher order spiritual commitments. It's all about the law and justice. Um, and uh, for him, for Smith, this was all basically a recipe for disaster um, because all of these lead to a kind of reductionism. Uh, and he says what religious vocabulary does is it blasts apart these walls and allows us to see that we're not simply reducible to whatever those particular elements uh, suggest we're reducible to. We're not just bags of chemicals. Uh, we're not just gene production machines um doing the bidding of our genes uh, to transmit them in, to future generations and then we die and that's the end of our existence nothing buddhism uh we're merely this or that this kind of vocabulary is the kind of vocabulary that is not only toxic uh, for ourselves for our inner bridge building process that i mentioned before it's also toxic in terms of how we speak to each other because what we wind up doing is is hurling epithets uh, uh, across the divide uh, between us. You're either a, a soulless, uh, atheist, secularist, um, or you are one of those woo-woo religious people that we should just simply just dismiss because you have nothing valuable to say. Um, Smith rejects that kind of reductionism and these kinds of dualisms. And just finally on this, on this point, one of the things that traps us in this dualistic and binary, sometimes binary kind of thinking is uh, our own language. Now, uh, John, John raised a very interesting question before, um, you know, did we create God or did God create us? Um, uh, that one, one understands why that question gets put that way. And um, the answer to the, to the question is yes. Um, God created us and we created God. That's the answer. 
from a religious perspective, we obviously didn't make ourselves. So we have a intuition, faith proposition, if you will, that we come from a source called God, name it, whatever you want to name it. But then we have to clothe that basic idea with other ideas. And then we create those. So for the Muslim, God is Allah. For the Jew, it's Yahweh. For the Christian, it's Yahweh, Jehovah. Um, for uh, Native Americans, it's the Great Spirit. Um, the process of clothing that raw concept of God or God simpliciter, you could say, is the process of telling a story about what this thing called God means for us, right? So what we'll be what I'll be exploring, and I'm sure we'll all be exploring, is how language trips us up and leads us to having these kinds of wars with each other over concepts that really are not as alienated from one another as people think they are. I greatly look forward to that discussion. I've read uh, some of Houston Smith's books, but not Why Religion Matters. So I'm greatly looking forward to that discussion. And uh, I, I was just thinking for, for a moment, uh, just as a small tangent, um, when, da when David was giving the different names for God and was mentioning in, in Judaism, Yahweh, Daft, I see you shaking your head. You want to come in and, and uh, offer your thoughts? Yes. In Judaism, the name for God is Yehovah, which gets translated by, by others as Yahweh, but it's yud Hey. Vav hey, Yehovah. It's all vowels. It's breath, breath of life. We are ensouled with our first breath when we are born with Yehovah, Yehovah, with breath. Daphna, can, can you just take a minute to kind of explain the notion in, in Judaism that, uh, I guess, you know, with God being beyond our understanding, uh, that, you know, th there isn't really a name, I, if I'm understanding it correctly, there isn't really a name that we can adequately use to give to God. And so often you see in Jewish texts, the G-D. Can you just give a, a brief explanation of that? The G-D is um, for writing. If I'm going to write the name of God, I'm going to do G-D. I'm not going to even write G-O-D because there's the possibility I might need to lift up a pencil and erase it. And the name of God is never to be erased. So in the Torah uh, or in prayer books, God is spelled with two yuds, um, two letter yuds. It's an abbreviation. You never write Adonai. You never write yud hey vav hey. You do two little yuds, Adonai, and you pronounce it Adonai. Um, and in the Torah scroll itself, you would never erase God's name. So if a scribe is writing a, a, a leaf of the Torah because they're in, um, um, what's the word? You know, a, a scribe, she will write or he will write a, a column and then sew it together with the peaches of pieces of parchment that came before. If you make a mistake, you can erase it with a razor blade, erase the ink or scratch it off. But if you make a mistake when writing the name of God, um, that entire piece of parchment is buried in a cemetery because it's a living thing and you would never uh, scratch off the name of God. So the, these are customs. 
Um, and yeah, God has many names in the Torah, you know, the source of life, the source of light. And there's a wonderful saying, if I can find it in my many, many notes, that basically, let me search for it, but the idea that God has many names and all names for God are right because all humans are created in God's image, so everybody's conception is right. And when we all can look at each other in the eyes and understand that your name and my name and his name and her name, all those names for the creative energy and force of the universe. Yes, and that, that would lead me to, to add, I want to add something to what Daphne said. That is something else I'd like to explore during our sessions, which is that um, we, we, we want to avoid um, a kind of false syncretism. And I know that in the past we've discussed that. Um, one can have a very robust view that they stick to, right? This is my story and I'm sticking to, sticking to it. And um, so we don't have to try to reduce um, Islamic thought to Jewish thought or to Baha'i thought. That's, that's not required. The way you out of that, because in the philosopher in me, knowing how my, my tribe of philosophers think about these things, well, they can't all be true, right? Well, that's because you're using truth in the wrong sense, right? If you look at every religion in the world, right? And I don't mean this to suggest that one's religious commitments need to be ironic. That's not what I'm saying. But, but they are experimental. Um, one does not have to stay a Jew. One does not have to stay a Baha'i. One does not have to stay a Christian. One doesn't even have to stay a believer. There's fluidity in our belief systems and our, in our journeys. And so if one steps back and says, not merely like this is my truth from a very purely subjectivist perspective, but that this is a grand experiment, uh, a grand metaphysical theological experiment um, that I'm engaged in. And I'm going to stick with this experiment. This is how I see God now. Um, I like to see God, say, as great spirit. Um, or in the, the words of, of Wayne Dyer, the late Wayne Dyer, I see God as source. Um, and you want to strip away uh, all of the, the traditional names used uh, for, for deity because that works for you for a time. Uh, or maybe for your entire life, then that's perfectly fine. There's no need to 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 find a way to to mold source talk with into Jehovah talk, right? Into Yahweh talk. Um, what we need to do is stand back and and, and allow what uh, the American philosopher Josiah Royce called loyalty to loyalty. That Daphne's loyalty to her Judaism is what informs her existence. Um, she has good reasons for being committed to it. What my job is to do, assuming that that commitment isn't going to require her to come and kill me or something, right, is to simply have respect and loyalty for her commitment. Um, uh, knowing that at some point, and not only at some point, but I'm sure it has happened over the journey that Daphne's taken as a Jew, she's changed her perspective on what Judaism means as she grew, okay? Um, and sometimes you can grow right out of your tradition into another. So that's the human, that's the wonderful thing about being a human being, right? That all of that is possible. 
So we have to be careful, I think, um, to not worry about how all of these things can be quote unquote true, nor do we need to worry about our claim that they're true is simply, simply merely subjective, you know, pablum. They're true in the sense of, of, um, of a grand experiment in, in how we form a cosmology, a theology uh, for, for, uh, for life and the meaning of everything. And since we can't live out all traditions at once, just like if you're a secular philosopher, you can't be committed to all philosophies at once, um, you have to pick. You've got to say, this seems to be the road that's the best road for me. Um, with all of its imperfections, warts, problems, inconsistencies, and sometimes even foolishness. But this is the road I'm committed to um, because it does inform my thinking. Daphne talked about Genesis. You don't have to believe in the Genesis story as a literal explanation of the creation of the world. That's not the point. The point of the story is that it triggers other ideas. Uh, this morning in my prayer session, uh, instead of being discursive, you just sit and listen. Sometimes prayer is silent. And what popped into my head is the, 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 the story out of the, the text, the biblical text of um, God telling Moses, put off thy shoes for thou stands on holy ground. And I'm like, what does that mean? Why did he tell him that? What does holiness mean? Right. And then my thought was off because of that single story. I must have had 10 or 15 other thoughts. Right. And one can understand that just as religious language does this, these religious stories do this. We can, if you're not ready for the religious stories, um, you know, think about the, the secular literature that informs your thinking. Uh, you might read about a character in The Great Gatsby, um, and now your mind is off and running about a particular scene. This is what happens when we allow ourselves to stop being resisting, resistant or stop resisting these kinds of approaches to religiosity. We can learn we can, we can allow them to be a conveyor to other kinds of uh, perspectives and ways of thinking that simply saying, um, just simply putting it in prosaic terms won't do. I, and just finally on this, one of the things I do with my students, because um, I introduce religious ethics as I teach my ethics classes, um, I'll tell my students, um, well, we've just explored Immanuel Kant's thinking uh, we've just gone through his categorical imperative, and now we know why it's wrong to kill, because basically it's a violation of the autonomy of another rational human being. But that's kind of bloodless, isn't it? Let me tell you a story about King David and the really, really crappy thing he did to this guy, Uriah, because he had lust in his heart for his Uriah's wife. Let me tell you the story about King David. And, I would, and I'll read the story out of Samuel. And, and I'm like, what do you think? And my students are like, wow, that was really a crappy th thing that, that David did. I said, yeah, but it really does inform the wrong in a way that's simply saying, well, David violated the categorical imperative, right? right? Doesn't do, right? So what you find in religious stories is the ability to find a way to put the, to infuse the moral perspective with blood, real, real hot blood, that really is what the human experience is, re is really all about. Piggybacking on that, yes. And what is essential is um, 
for me is this lesson, which I always say over and over again to the students I teach. Torah is true. It's just not literally true. So as, as David said, when we read those foundational stories in Genesis, I mean, religious zealots of, of many faiths will say, oh yeah, there really was an Adam and Eve in a Garden of Eden. Personally, I don't think so. But the stories are filled with metaphors and our job is to seek meaning. And um, the Torah is cherished not because it tells us how to live, rather it addresses the challenges and the struggles we have as human beings. And as Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs says, through the lives of the Bible people in it and through the laws we agree to follow as a nation, the Torah brings up things that we need to wrestle with. Like, really? King David killed Uriah because he lusted after Uriah's wife? We're supposed to be horrified by that. Another teaching that I really find beautiful is from Elie Wiesel, who said, when you would disagree, do it for the sake of the other. So the art of argument is to try to help the one you disagree with and yourself clarify thoughts, clarify feelings, and see more than one point of view. That's exactly right. I, I completely agree with that. Um, not to cut you off, Daphne, but you made me think of uh, my teacher at the New School for Social Research, um, Richard, Richard J. Bernstein, who passed away last July 4th. Um, and uh, one of the things, one day I, I was privileged to have to do a, to do a, uh, a panel which was celebrating um, his body of work and, uh, and a particular book that had just come out. And um, um, I'm known for being a bit pugilistic in these, in these uh, sessions, which I've stopped being over the years. But, but of course, I wasn't going to be pugilistic to who we call Dick. We called him Dick. His name is Richard Bernstein. So, we, you know, so, so Dick was sitting there, um, as he always was, and it was my turn to speak. And Dick would sit and he, he looked like uh, he had the white flowing hair and he was, you know, had the, the, the wrinkles of age and wisdom. And he's sitting there at Fordham University and he's got his hands, his head down, his hands are on, a, on his forehead. And what he was doing is what he did in seminars and lecture classes. He was listening deeply. He was listening deeply. He wasn't ready to pounce. He was trying to process the honest effort of whoever was speaking to help them clarify their own thoughts. And he did that all the time. And, and he had a way of being, of disagreeing with you or even calling you out as he did once sharply with me in public. But it was always in a way for, for the student to clarify them, their thinking, clarify their perspective not to beat them down. And I think that part of what we will hopefully do in, in these sessions is to invite people in. Um, I, I assume at some point we'll be, we'll be receiving uh, messages from folks about what we're saying. And the point will be for us, uh, the, 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 the requirement for all of us will be to find ways to, to help them 
achieve some clarity or receive some clarity um, because we'll be, you know, there's a lot of smart people out there. So I just wanted to jump in there with that. I was just going to add before when you were talking about your students that I don't know if you had mentioned in your intro that you uh, teach at Rutgers uh, and uh, you teach philosophy and ethics. I teach, um, yes, I teach at Rutgers University. I've been teaching there for 18 or so years now. Prior to that, I taught a few years at Malloy College, uh, which is now Malloy University on Long Island. But most of my teaching time has been at, at uh, Rutgers, and uh, it's a wonderful experience. I, I'm privileged to be able to teach a lot of ethics courses, including environmental, on environmental topics, um, at a time that you know, the world seems like it's ablaze um, with division. And, you know, I um, like like Daphna and like you, you, John, I think that, you know, we've, we've, we've put ourselves through the paces or life has or God has. And I think that we can actually help heal some divisions out there. So I try I try to do that with my students um, by never letting my students leave my classes as binary or dualistic thinkers. You know, if you're pro-life, for example, on abortion, um, I help you have a better argument for your pro-life position. If you're pro-choice, I help you have a better argument for your pro-choice position. And But I insist that you try to understand each other, not just take a side. Um, there's enough of that going on out here. Um, you know, as on politics, uh, what I try to get my students to do is, I, and I, I use this phrase all the time, when we start talking about political philosophy or political ethics, I'll say that every human being on this planet, I don't care what your party affiliation is, has conservative bones and liberal flesh. So that will, I'm sure, be an episode unto itself in the future. Before we wrap things up, I wanted to quickly offer a preview of the foundational episode that I hope to uh provide in, in the coming episodes, in the coming weeks. So if there's a single teaching or a single book that has influenced my life and my thinking more than anything else, it would be the Tao Te Ching. However, for the purposes of this podcast, um, I'm, I will talk about the Tao Te Ching at various points, but for the purposes of this podcast and these foundational episodes, because we're going to be integrating different approaches and philosophies and looking at what they have in common, and from my perspective, looking at the psychology of belief, I think that on this topic of the psychology of religion, there's a book that I read a number of years ago that I think summarizes or comes as close as possible to summarizing uh, my perspectives on all of this. And that's Deepak Chopra's book, How to Know God. And Deepak Chopra is, is Hindu. He approaches religion from an Eastern Hindu perspective, but he has a masterful way of creating a pyramid or a hierarchy of understanding God that is similar to the stage theories that psychologists uh, are always gravitating towards, whether it's Piaget's stage theories or Kohlberg's stage theories, 
which I did my dissertation on. And so as a psychologist, the psychologist in me really appreciates the sort of stage theories. Uh, other people, you know, may feel that that's too reductionistic, but um, the psychologist in me likes the stage theories. And so he identifies seven stages of understanding God from very um, concrete, fundamental, and rudimentary to the most ethereal, the most abstract at stage seven. And I think from his perspective, you know, the people that we are and the people that we see to the left and the right of us, um, we may all want the same things, but we may be operating at a different stage level. And so the, the tricky part is that you may encounter someone who has similar ends or similar beliefs as you, but if they're at a different stage level, they're going to be talking about it in a very different way, and they're going to have a very different understanding of it. And there's a, a potential for conflict just because there's a different way of understanding the same thing. So whether that's the difference between a concrete, literal understanding of the Bible and a more abstract and metaphoric understanding of the Bible, or whether that's what the nature of humankind is, what the nature of the soul is, what the nature of all of these existential mysteries are, what happens after we die, so on and so forth. There are more fundamental ways of understanding these things, and then there are more uh, abstract ways of understanding these things. And so I think Deepak Chopra delineates all of this in a very structured, organized way that's easy to understand. And so as we have our discussions moving forward on whatever topic, I might make a comment like, oh, yeah, okay. So that would be kind of like a stage two understanding of the book of Genesis. But, you know, meanwhile, somebody else may have a stage five understanding of the book of Genesis. And, you know, as you were talking about the book of Genesis and talking about the Torah as, as being true, but maybe not literally true, Daphna, I was thinking about, you know, our, our good friend Joseph Campbell, who, um, you know, famously said about uh, mythology, a myth is something that has never happened, but is happening all the time. And, you know, perhaps we can think about the Bible in the same way. Uh, these are stories that have never happened, but are happening all of the time because they are about humankind and human nature. And that is what we are looking to form the bridge between the bridges within ourselves, the bridge between us and our listeners, and the bridge between people who have different visions and understandings of God, religion, and all of these things. One of the, the things that I think that would the uh, uh, that we'll all benefit from as we build our bridges um, is this virtue of magnanimity. Um, what you just said, John, echoes Karen Armstrong's notion that we've talked about in the past that we're sort of on an upward spiraling staircase. Um, we get to the same place as we go on, if we go on, and we wind up, but at a higher level on that spiral staircase. So doing the kind of Richard Bernstein thing, which is to sit back and recognize that the student may not be on 
the level, the undergraduate student may not be on the same level as the graduate student, may not be on the same level as someone who's been deeply thinking about something for 10 years. That's okay. That's that's fine. And the issue, what we have to do is, as we proceed, and this is a moral obligation that we have, right, is to make room for the level of uh, the stage of development that people find themselves on. Uh, this is not to say that we're, you know, in some highfalutin place above everybody else, because we're on our own journey. Everybody's on a journey. But I think that part of the bridge building uh, discussion is to let people be at the stage that they're on because they really can't be at another stage at that point. Um, but I might add, I teach middle school students or kids emerging into middle school. So in terms of their the hierarchy of development, I have I teach the Torah and Jewish values at a very, um, I have to be very clear and filled with metaphors and imagery and stories for the students to grasp what they're learning. So I kind of think and speak and teach at that level, um, which is what I do. And I wanted to add something. Um, Ariel Berger, who's a Kabbalist and wrote the book um, Witness Lessons from Elie Wiesel's Classroom, where he was his assistant at um, Boston University, has this beautiful image or metaphor. He says, the world is like a baby running a fever that I am holding in my arms. He's almost addressing the divine feminine energy that men, of course, have too. And to me, what does it mean the world is like a baby running a fever that I'm holding in my arms? That we have to approach each other and the world we live in with an open heart in spite of everything, with tenderness and compassion and love, and be on that bridge together. Whether we're approaching each other from opposite sides, or as David said once to us, we're all huddled on the bridge together. Your, your imagery, your use of imagery is uh, extraordinary and very helpful. And so you, we, I can think of myself here as holding this baby and I have two kids and remembering when they had a fever and how tender it's almost like holding a baby bird. And if we hold the world or each other with that tenderness, uh, that would seem to go a long way into, in terms of healing a lot of the, the wounds that we have. Yeah, I agree. So I think that we will call it a wrap here. And I'd like to thank all of you out there for crossing this first bridge with us. And I hope that we've piqued your interest enough to join us as we cross future bridges in future episodes that are here to come. Have a wonderful day, all of you. And I look forward to you joining us in the future. Thank you. Gesher. Each episode of the Gesher Sessions podcast, including its recording and contents, is copyright of the Gesher Sessions. All rights reserved. Today's episode was produced and edited by Lisa Catone. The music used for the beginning and end of today's episode was composed by Anthony LaRoe, who owns its copyright and gave permission for its use.